The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The critics, as, as Mr. Nabokov knows, have said a great many things about this book. I'd like to see if he agrees with them. I'll quote some of them to you. Uh, one critic called it a satire on sex, a mirror of human frailties. Another said that it was a joke on our national cant about youth. A third that it was a cutting expose of chronic American adolescence and shabby materialism. Is this so? Is this what you were intending? I, do, I don't think so. I don't think so. Well, first of all, um, I, 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 do not, I don't wish to touch hearts and I, I don't even want to affect minds uh, very much. What I want to produce is really uh, that little sob uh, in, in the spine of the artist reader. Uh, well, I, I leave the field of ideas to, uh, to Dr. Schweitzer and to, to Dr. Zhivago. Mm, leave the field of ideas to Dr. Schweitzer and Dr. Zhivago, not trying to affect hearts or even minds very much. He wants to produce the sob in the spine of the artist reader. That's Vladimir Nabokov appearing on an arts affairs program discussing his masterpiece of a novel, Lolita. Nabokov was territorial about his writing and protective against criticism of it, believing that his art was often misunderstood. And with a novel like Lolita, that high-wire act, the chance of being misunderstood was very high, as were the consequences. Readers read it, fans and critics discuss it, Essayists fill pages with their thoughts. It's a book that was not easy to write. Witness the note cards sometime, and you'll see what care Nabokov took with the prose. And it was not easy to publish, and it has not been easy to assess. Time has not made that much easier. You could argue that time has only made the assessment process more complicated. We're no longer prudes about sex, perhaps, but if anything, we're even more sensitive to issues of power dynamics and potential abuse. And yet, Lolita goes on, challenging us, entertaining us, making us shift uncomfortably in our chairs. It's everything that literature does and should do. It enlarges our circumference, as Virginia Woolf said of Freud, a man, by the way, whom Nabokov detested. We've had several guests on the History of Literature who've given us different looks at this novel as it closes in on 70 years of age. We gather some highlights from those interviews today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I'm Jack Wilson, still motoring along, even as the road sails off into nowhere. <laughs> or at least, that's how it seems sometimes. Thelma and Louise, headed for the cliff. Where am I in that image? Perpetually in motion, soaring through the sky. Or maybe wanting to do that and running out of gas before I get there. That would be me. Hey, can someone give me a push? 
I'm going to sail off into the sky. Anyone? No? Motoring along toward episode 400. And then it occurred to me that even the most diligent listeners would probably have a hard time working through our archive. And for those of you who've heard everything, it's probably been a while, maybe years in some cases. So why not do some highlights shows organized by theme? How about one of these a month? We'll start with Lolita. I'll get out of the way and let the clips and the guests do the talking. But here's what we have. First, Jenny Minton Quigley is going to talk about the Lolita Anthology she edited. These are essays about the book coming at it from all angles. Then we'll hear from Jim Shepard, who incidentally was Jenny's teacher and who introduced her, in a sense, to this book that she had had as part of her heritage. Her father had been the publisher of Lolita in America. Her father really changed Nabokov's life, I think that's fair to say, and vice versa is probably also fair to say. And finally, we'll hear from novelist Joshua Ferris, who said, hey, let's talk about Nabokov and Freud. An excellent subject indeed. So Jenny Minton Quigley is first. We talked about her family history with the book, including the pile of letters she read between her father and Vladimir Nabokov, publisher and editor, who wrote to each other almost every day, and the many letters that her father exchanged with Nabokov's wife, Vera, also about publishing. She was bullish on Lolita. She believed in it, thought it was a work of genius. Lolita was published during an era of censorship. Walter, Jenny's father, took a lot of risks in bringing it out. We'll all end up in jail, he was told. But artistically and commercially, too, it was high risk, high reward. And then she and I turned to what it was like to put together a book about the book, Lolita, and what it means to writers and social critics today. The the book never lands on one answer. Right. You know, Susan Choi calls it a moral hazard. And Emily Mortimer says it transcends morality. Yeah. So, so I, I don't think. <laughs> right. I, I don't think um, there's a sort of conclu- conclusive answer. You know, even after reading the book. Yeah. Which and is terrific. I didn't want that, and I certainly didn't want everybody um, writing the same thing. Right. Which gets to your next question, which is, um, I was worried with with a book of you know all essays about the same novel. I I was worried that they would start to sound too much alike. Right. And so from the very start, um, I tried to think of topics that would be um, fun to explore. Yeah. Or, you know, or interesting or of the moment to explore about Lolita. And then to think of writers who who might be right for that. Uh, My agent, Jen Marshall, helped me. Stacey Schiff helped me. Stacey Schiff said, oh, we have to have an on the road piece. You know, Lolita really is and on the road yeah, novel, they right. travel across America, and yeah. and and I think she was even the one who came up with Ian Fraser. So we, you know, mm. I called Ian Fraser, and he wrote the most brilliant piece, you know, and he's yeah. a Nabokov aficionado. He he um he wrote about Nabokov in St. Petersburg, and you know, just tracked him every place he'd been on the road. It, it amazing piece. Um, Lolita fashion. There's a whole subculture of Lolita fashion, Mm. um, this sort of Japanese um, subculture of these very innocent young looking girls, but clothes. Yeah. Um, 
And then I think Jen Marshall thought, how about Robin Given? And she wrote just this amazing piece about the fashion and also about how she, as a young black girl, never responded to it. You know, it was like nothing about her. Right. <laughs> so that was that was really interesting. Then other contributors came up with their own ideas. Yeah. Tom Bissell wanted to write about the movies. Yeah, right. I was going to say that that the movies are, you know, you you could have they could be their own separate book almost. Um, I was glad to see that they were discussed here. Uh, Laura Lipman was he, a really. He did uh, write a book. Yeah. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, he wrote a book. I had to cut it down. <laughs> and uh, you know, like sixty pages. Laura Lipman was a perfect choice. She's uh, a crime writer. We've talked about here. Uh, a few times, I think, on the podcast. And she writes kind of about the detective story in the book, which often gets overlooked. That That's an element of what's going on here. And, and she kind of analyzes how successful it is and how that functions within the narrative. What was so amazing about the Laura Lipman piece is that I asked her, because I love her as a mystery writer, I, I asked her to write about the, the mystery of, you know, at the heart of, of the novel, but what I hadn't known was that she had studied Lolita with Alfred Apple at mm-hmm. Northwestern. Yeah. And so um, not only did she sort of, does she blow up sort of this impossible mystery that Nabokov con- constructed, but she also blows up some of those clues and notes that Apple taught them as fact and, and, and have not survived the, te- the test of time. Yeah. And others, Andre Debuse the third was reading the book for the first time, which was an interesting take on it. Uh, I think a lot of people in the literary world probably encounter it when they're, uh, you know, in their teens or twenties, and then maybe return to it. Um, but I thought that was an interesting take that he was reading it for the first time. There's just uh, so many different ones. Emily Mortimer is she's got these really interesting intersections with it, and her essay is is kind of incredible. It's kind of amazing. She was an actress in The Bookshop, which is the Penelope Fitzgerald novel about uh, a woman who tries to sell Lolita, opens up a bookstore and is selling Lolita. She, Emily Mortimer was in that film, and she was also the daughter of uh, John Mortimer, who's people might know as the author of Rumpole of the Bailey and himself, a, a London barrister. Uh, I thought she had a really interesting angle on the book as well. Uh, you know, her piece came in kind of late, not late as in past the due date, just late in the sequence of pieces coming in. Mm. It is so brave. It actually is valiant. It reminds me of Walter. You know, there's people in this in the world who are just brave, and I'm I'm really not one of them. But but she is, and she came down and just said, you know, this is a brilliant piece of art. This is a brilliant piece of literature. We sympathize. Nabokov makes us sympathize with a pedophile and a rapist and a monster. And I think her father, who who prosecuted, who um who defended murderers, John Mortimer, defended murderers, sort of taught her that everyone has some humanity inside them. And I think what a lot of people um either aren't feeling or don't want to say that this is. That that he that Nabokov creates sympathy for Humbert, and that this is a, a masterpiece. You know, she she came out and so boldly said, yeah, which was awesome. Yeah, um, Andre Debus, I love that that Andre Debus was, was was reading it for the first time. I what I what I like about how the book turned out is there's some there's some um, Nabokov aficionados. There are some people who you know Lolita has been in an 
really big part of their writing life and their lives. And then there are other people who are sort of would call themselves, I guess, Nabokov outsiders, you know, who, who don't, it, it's not a, they're coming to it either for the first time or certainly aren't experts. And, and I sort of like that balance. Yeah. Right. I kind of felt like, uh, and I may have talked about this with Jim Shepard as well, it it always, that's one of the things that stands out to me with the book. A lot of people will say, well, the language is so beautiful, it redeems any unsavory aspects of it. And it's not like I want to censor the book or anything like that. But I still sort of feel like, well, that doesn't fully answer the question for me, because it doesn't really capture the experience I had when I was reading it. And the thing that I could compare it with was the show Breaking Bad, which is maybe my favorite television show of all time. Oh, no and, one said that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, the feeling and, and just knowing that Vince Gilligan, you know, he had this idea. He was going to turn this guy from Mr. Chips into Scarface and he couldn't believe and he and the writers would just sit in the writer's room baffled because they couldn't believe that the public hadn't turned on Walt. And in fact, he was still a hero. And they were like, what is it going to take? We've already made him, you know, we've made him a murderer. Now we've made him like someone who has he's murdering for fun and, and he's killing a kid and he's, you know, and like everything they could think of that would make him get worse and worse they thought, well, this is really going to do it. You know, this is going to be the end. People are going to hate Walt now. And instead, he just became more and more of a folk hero. And to me, that was the most fascinating thing about watching the show is you find yourself rooting for Walt. And then you find yourself asking yourself, why do I want this guy to succeed? He's horrible. He's a monster. He should be the villain. And yet, is it is it the way that art, you know, is it appealing to something in me, like I want to be free and get away with something? Or is it just the way that art kind of, because he's the protagonist of the show and because you want to, you want to root for the guy that the show is about? And, and that's kind of how I felt like when I was reading Lolita is, why am I not turning on Humbert? And in fact, I even find like I want him to... Uh, continue to do some of these awful things, is it because he's such a fun narrator and he's his sense of humor is here and because I'm enjoying the prose? And why is this having this effect on me? What is my response really about? So I guess, first of all, I would say, I wish I had asked you to write yeah. that thing. <laughs> <laughs> that would be really good. Be that'll be the second edition. Uh, yeah, second <laughs> well, the edition, sequel. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, and then the second thing I, I, I would say is uh, what what you're saying, I think, is what Emily Emily Mortimer would say. It is certainly not what what every contribu contributor said said, and um, I, it's not the way they're teaching it. You know, yeah. I sat in on a high school AP English class in my town last year, and it, it, the kids were, the students were so paranoid. Um, they had been taught that that Humbert was such an unreliable narrator that mm. they were being so manipulated on every page that that you got to the scene on the hill where you know Humbert has remorse. Finally, he hears the concord of of voices coming up the hill, right? The sound of children playing, and he realizes 
that it's his fault. Olita's voice isn't amongst them. Yeah. And that's the point where I cried, where, you know, and, and, and it was like nothing to them. And, and I did think, I wonder why they're reading it then. And that's the question that I don't have an answer to whether they should still be or not. I, I really, some days I think yes, some days I think no, but, but, but if we're going to be so, um, if if we're going to be so um, paranoid of the of the of his character and so unwilling to in- engage with him, then I don't know if. I mean, I guess you could read it just for the language. Yeah, but, I, I'm not sure you need to read it in school. Right, but the the yeah exactly, and the the thought experiment I had here was well, what if this was just about a guy who was driving across America and and catching butterflies, and it was written with this prose? I do think it would be still kind of an amazing work of art, uh, but I don't think it would be anywhere near Lolita. You know, I, I don't think it's just the prose that makes it an amazing work of literature. There's more to it than that. Well, it's probably just that what you're saying too, right? That amazing ability that that Nabokov had that you do get inside the mind of this person and have and have of this monster. Yeah. And and the kid said, you know, the one thing that Walt didn't do in Breaking Bad is rape someone, wow. because the kid said the kid said, you know, we we could have sympathized with a murderer, we could have sympathized. They just, it, you know, it, the rapist and the rape of a child. Yeah. Um, right. They, right. They didn't have Walt do that. Yeah, that is really the taboo, and and Nabokov goes right at it. Yep. Uh, do you get the sense that a lot of people take the attitude of, well, I can read it, but I'm worried about other people reading it, reading Lolita? So, so like who? Uh, well, Vera like, herself worried about young girls reading it. Yeah. She thought she didn't think that kids should read it. I just was wondering if, if a lot of people, sometimes I get the sense that people are saying, well, yes, it's art and I, I can read it and, and analyze it on that level, but I don't think it should be taught in schools or I don't think it should be. Uh, I, I I think other people are probably misreading it and reading it for the wrong reasons and reading it for the salaciousness, but they're probably not appreciating it the way I do the, you know, coming at it from the point of view I do. I just was wondering if, if you ever had that sense, sometimes that kind of grates on me a little bit that some people seem to feel like they can understand it, but the rest of the world is going to not appreciate the the complexity in the way that they would. Absolutely. And and one thing I found in my research, um, Jack, was that every 10 years, there's yeah. some piece in the New York Times or, you know, someone comes along and says that everyone's been misreading Lolita. <laughs> hey, grownups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the cat in the hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. 
sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, thank you, Jenny. Oh, I loved talking to her. And we talked to her a second time about the O. Henry Prize anthology, which she also edits. Editor extraordinaire, Jenny Minton Quigley. You can find both those episodes in our archives. And now, next, we travel backwards into the distant realm of early History of Literature podcast episodes to a discussion that we had with author Jim Shepard who chose several books for his show. Bram Stoker's Dracula was one. A book about volcanoes was another. And, of course, Lolita. Jenny had mentioned this. She took a class with Jim Shepard at Williams College, and he used to read Lolita to them in the voice of Dracula, emphasizing the comedic aspects of Humbert Humbert, or at least the Humbertian voice. High antic prose. This is part of my conversation with Jim Shepard, I asked him where he was in life when the book Lolita came his way. Um, it was pretty late, actually. I think, um, you know, I'd, I'd heard vague things about it over the years, but again, I came from a very um, essentially uneducated family. Mm. So um, I think I came across it first in college um, and mm. then really studied it for the first time in graduate school. So I came to it fairly late. Mm-hmm. So it wouldn't have been on but your it, parents' shelf. No, not even close. Yeah. Um, my my parents, um, you know, because neither of them had gone to college, they tended to believe that books were a good idea, but if you were going to read books, you should learn something, which meant that uh, the, the huge preponderance of the books in our house were either reference books or nonfiction books. Right, um, right. There was almost no fiction or poetry in our house. And so then um, you encountered it in college, was your first read of it? Yeah, um, and I remember being um, just flattened by the idea that a, a book could be that performative and that manic and comic and yet be about something so uh, horrifyingly powerful. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think I'd ever read, I'd, uh, I hadn't read up to that point, and I'm not sure I've read since, any book that so spectacularly combines playfulness and heartbreak or um, or that so spectacularly presents you with an extraordinarily charming, unreliable narrator that you don't want to be charmed by, but oh. who keeps winning, who keeps winning you over to his games, you know. Yeah. Um, and as you move farther into the book, you know, I'd always come across this wonderful line of Robert Frost's that poetry is play for mortal stakes. Um, mm. But it was really Lolita that that showed me why that's true. You know, I mean, I. I sort of understood on an intellectual level, oh, yeah, I see. So the poem Robert Frost wrote really means a lot to him. Okay, whatever. <laughs> um, but but when, <laughs> when you're playing this game with Humbert and Nabokov, and, you know, he's setting up all of these little um, traps for you and setting up all of these little connections you can draw and then leading you down these blind alleys and you're both enjoying it and, and being slightly horrified by it, you're always being reminded in the book that that this is a predator who has destroyed the life of a child and is continuing 
to simultaneously um, try to wiggle out of that in the most entertaining ways possible and fess up to it in the most heartbreaking ways possible. Um, And the idea that you could keep that sort of tightrope balance going throughout a whole novel was just astonishing to me. and it was uh, hugely inspiring for that reason, I think, as a as a fiction writer to sort of say, you know, because one of the things I really I, I tell myself and I tell my students all the time is in order to keep doing this, you really need to keep that notion of play in front of you as a writer. You know, you really knew, do need to believe that when you're sitting down at the desk, you're not simply wrestling with the most difficult emotional um, issues you've ever dealt with because what male wants to sit down and do that, right? But um, the idea that you'd be sitting down to play is a lot more appealing. And the idea that by sitting down to play, you're going to get at something very, very difficult and very, very naughty is is a wonderfully exhilarating and liberating notion. Mm, Yeah. I mean, the book for me, it's always been so important for me in understanding the experience of reading. You know, mm-hmm. we're we're so conditioned to root for the narrator anyway, and to want yeah. to want what the narrator wants, and it's disorienting to realize we might it, almost against our will be rooting for something that we find or someone that we find morally distasteful. Yeah, it, it really kind of opened me up as a human. It it caused me to question myself: Why am I going along with this, or what is it about this that is making me? feel uh like it's i'm I'm uneasy with the way that i'm reading this yeah and it, it's also kind of wonderful in terms of um ethical issues on the way in which all confessions are in some ways secret self-exonerations mm, um right of course if it ended up being just an attempt at a self-exoneration everyone would have found the book repellent but in fact it moves past that to a really honest and, and heartbreaking mea culpa at the end. But before that, there's so much that sounds like, uh, now I'm going to really fess up and tell you the truth, that slithers into something else. And then suddenly you find yourself once again having, you know, he takes advantage of that desire you have to uh, bond with your narrator. Um, and you find yourself over and over again in, in very unpleasant emotional positions, you know. Right, right. Okay, so I have a uh, a quotation, and this is actually a quotation uh, that I found in an interview with you. Um, oh, there you go. This this is something that you said, and I thought this would be uh, a good time for me to roll this out and, and see what you think. <laughs> All right. Okay, so the quote is, I don't want to seem like the omniscient wise figure that has a take on the characters. What I want to do is create the illusion that there's this voice talking to you and it's quite persuasive at times and quite limited at other times and allow you to make your own judgments about the voice. Mm. And I yeah, thought that, sounds that familiar. reminds me of Humbert Humbert. Yeah, it really does. And, and Humbert, you know, one of the wonderful things about Humbert is that on the one hand, he's extraordinarily intelligent and extraordinarily erudite and mm-hmm. um, arrogant. And on the other hand, he has, it hardly needs to be said, but he has staggering blind spots. And he also, part of the novel's comedy, and Nabokov is wonderful at comedy, is what deficiencies of just basic common sense he has as well. Um, And so I've always been, and I'm sure Lolita had a big effect on me with this as well. I've always been fascinated, fascinated by the way smart people can do incredibly stupid things. Um, And and I love the way that renovates our notion of of uh, epiphany, which is often, you know, the Joyce's term, uh, as it's been a, a sort of shanghaied by literary 
critics, um, it's often misunderstood to be sort of like, well, if only we had more information, we would never make these mistakes again, you know? And mm. so, you know, the, the sort of simple-minded epiphanies, the way they get worked out is sort of like, you know, then Billy understood that his grandmother had never had it so easy and he would never think of her the same way again, you know, right, that kind of right. thing. Yeah. Um, but, but I'm fascinated by writers like Nabokov or Robert Stone who are all about um, presenting you with characters who announce to you right away that they see very much uh, with great clarity what it is they need to do, and then they don't do it. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, they have all the information they need, and they, um, you yeah. know, uh, they continue um, against all odds to fail to succeed, you know. Right. It's so human. It's so human. Oh. Um, and it's so devastating, right? Because we want to believe that if we were just armed with sufficient information, yep. um, that would solve that problem. But anybody who's had a family knows that's not the way that works, right? Um, right. Uh, we, we, <laughs> we, we continually say to our loved ones, Mom, you're doing it again. And, you know, when we realize Mom knows what she's doing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and finally today, our third clip with Joshua Ferris, the novelist, we discuss Nabokov's relationship with Freud. Nabokov hated Freud, the Viennese witch doctor, he called him. Freudian analysis is a prison of thought, he said. A nursery school of thought, he said elsewhere. Once he was lecturing about literature at Cornell and he started ranting about Freud, and suddenly the heating pipes started to clatter. And the noise got louder as Nabokov kept raising his own voice, and finally he stopped and said, The Viennese quack is railing at me from his grave. In Lolita itself, he has Humbert say, Sometimes I attempt to kill in my dreams. I hold a gun. I am aiming at a bland, quietly interested enemy. Oh, I press the trigger all right, but one bullet after another feebly drops on the floor from this sheepish muzzle. And he adds later, we must remember that a pistol is the Freudian symbol of a penis. Or in Nabokov's phraseology, the Ur-Father's central forelimb. These are expensive confession fests, he said, of psychoanalysis brought about by the Austrian crank with a shabby umbrella. I admire Freud greatly, he once said, as a comic writer. A backhanded compliment, to be sure. But mostly the compliments were not compliments, and the backhand was more like a Will Smithian slap. The vulgar, shabby, fundamentally medieval world of Freudian thought, Nabokov said. It was not enlightened. For him, it was unenlightened, and yet he couldn't quit Freud. It was a kind of chain around his leg, or perhaps an ugly image he saw in the mirror. Let's move to our third clip which is from our interview with Joshua Ferris. In this clip, Josh is discussing what he learned from reading all of Nabokov in high school, including Nabokov's attitude toward Freud. You also know that he hates Freud. Yeah. I mean, he hates Freud. He just right. hates him. It's in the prefaces. It's, it's, oh, it's every yeah. interview. It's, you, you, it's amazing how often he returns to it. Astonishing. Something is up. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's with such energy and such vitriol. I mean, it's he's always calling it the Viennese witch doctor or the man with the shabby umbrella, or he calls it a thought prison. He calls it uh, blackmail. Like he just, 
it yeah. just goes on and on. He comes up with new ways to uh, denigrate Freud or Freudianism or readers or critics. It's a yeah. It's a, it's it's wicked. It's dismissive. It's um, intolerant. It's absolute. Mm-hmm. It is so often actually frequently evocative of the kind of generalities uh, that Freud himself makes when when yeah. when arguing right. on behalf of his own um, claims and neuroses and theses and all the rest of it. I mean, he does Nabokov, who is so subtle and so preternaturally attuned to so much, mm. simply deals with Freud in the most in the crudest, most generalized terms. Yeah. Um, he simply either could not be bothered to really address and spend time with, you know, the books and the essays that Freud were, was, uh, was writing and the argumentation that Freud was putting forth, or he simply had no way of actually getting down into the muck and defeating him at his own game. Did you come to Freud via Nabokov, or were you? Did you encounter Freud uh, from another source, like in college or something? So to go back, so I'm reading a lot of Nabokov. I'm, I'm, as you point out, finding his dismissals in the prefaces. In the prefaces, I'm seeing his. I'm reading some of the interviews that are, that uh, you know crop up in strong opinions and and the references that are in those uh, interviews and and essays and. Then, and then, you know, frankly, you know, to read the books themselves, there are quite a lot of references made uh, throughout the fiction mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. You know, his his scorn and dismissal. So I'm encountering those as well. And I'm thinking, well, I know I like this guy. Uh, so this Ford guy just must be bunk. He must be silly. Yeah. And without doing much critical thinking about, Either one of them, I dismissed the one and embraced the other. So um, that's where things stood for like ten or fifteen years, and and um, you know, I mean, obviously, I think just to be a human being in the world in the twentieth century is to understand to say when I was g- being educated in in, in college uh, is to understand some Freudian theories, and it's to understand basically what you know, Freud put forth, even if in cartoonish terms. So it wasn't as if I was completely ignorant of him, but I would deliberately avoid him out of some sort of sense of weird sense of loyalty that I had to a man who, you know, died when I was three. I don't know why this right. was the case, but um, <laughs> right. I didn't show so, a lot of personal curiosity for him. Oh, that's interesting. You know, I almost had the opposite experience where I came to Freud first, and it was because I didn't encounter either one until college, but they were everywhere. I think you and I went to college around the same time in the 90s, and they were everywhere. I mean, you couldn't take a literature course without Freud either being discussed or at the center of it, or it was a deliberate uh, turning away from Freud, one or the other. And Nabokov was what everybody was reading in their spare time. You know, that was, even if you didn't have him assigned that'd be what everyone wanted to read on the weekends and everything and so uh what what i found was i had started to feel like freud was kind of a con game or i was starting to feel like i didn't like the way freud was making me and everyone else read literature and uh-huh. you know i, I uh-huh. wanted to sure. read middlemarch and instead people told me i had to read freud so that i would learn how to 
how to read Middlemarch or something. And so exactly, I right. was getting kind of, I felt like I was being kind of pushed around and, and I didn't like the way that it would uh, ascribe to authors this sort of unconscious determination of what was going into the works. And I, I didn't like it when an author said, no, I didn't mean that at all. And the answer was, well, your unconscious probably did, which maybe right, has some exactly. merit, but I, I felt like we were right. really uh, ending up kind of privileging the critic more than the author and the reader. And so when I then encountered Nabokov and he was attacking Freud, I was ready. I was ready to, uh-huh. to uh, you know, then I thought, I want to read more of Nabokov's works because I thought, here's a guy who gets what I'm getting, which is uh, there's real problems with the way that Freud is immersed in literature. So it sounds like when you got to Freud, then you found there was more to it than what you had gotten from Nabokov. Well, yeah. I mean, I found that there was a hell of a lot more to it and, and a hell of a lot more than I thought. I mean, I want to preface it by saying that almost everything Freud writes is wrong in its literal <laughs> sense. Like, I, I, if I can't understand, if I do, in fact, understand what he's trying to say, I disagree with it. Right. So it's fairly extraordinary how right a man so wrong can be. Yeah. And I don't exactly know how it happens because... The prison, the sort of like, there's a, there's a way to look at Freud and to frame him and to really agree with. I mean, he, this is sort of a really back, backhanded compliment. It's like, uh, it reminds me of a Michael Keaton movie in which he's going around to his off uh, to his superior's uh, office and saying, uh, when he's looking at family photographs, nice frame. <laughs> <laughs> but that's Freud's frames are all right, but it's the picture inside of them, the details yeah. that are so off. Yeah. Um, but somehow you managed. Somehow he manages to convey a frame that almost seems perfectly right to me. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, suddenly I realized that the effective argumentation, which is almost none, no argumentation at all, but nevertheless the effective argumentation that Volkov made against Freud. Which really result, which really just was like a kind of propaganda, mm-hmm. had worked on me. That I was, I was propagandabilized. Mm. I was, I was mm-hmm. capable of being propagandized against Freud by somebody who was as good as Nabokov, as consistent and as and as 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 withering uh, as he yeah. could be. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. That's interesting to talk about that because they are both very seductive prose writers. Yes. Nabokov is, when you read him, you want to be right there with him and, and his enemies. It's fun to have them be your enemies as well. He's so passionate and he's, he's got such facility with the language and with his tone and he is a little over the top, but it's fun and it's funny. And Freud is, is seductive in, I think of him as being like a Conan Doyle, uh, where he, you know, he presents these, his case studies are presented almost like detective novels. And you read them and you want to agree with Freud because he's uncovering a mystery and it's it's exciting. It, it makes you want to do it as well. You know, that, that y- there are details and clues and hidden patterns and you can really help people or you can come to this deeper understanding by being able to almost creatively put the pieces of this puzzle together. I think that's right. I mean, I think one of the things that makes him so seductive 
is that we have an innate uh, we have an innate urge as human beings to feel as if the answer is hidden but can be arrived at, mm-hmm. and with some effort and with some acuity um, and over time with the right kind of tools, we will eventually get at what some otherwise maybe diabolical force has kept hidden from us for so long. So when you encounter Freud, you're like, aha! And I think this is sort of like the collective aha that happened circa 1910, uh, certainly by 1920, in which everybody was like, here at last is the answer to all of our troubles that makes no reference to religion. And it, mm-hmm. it, frankly, is absolutely no historical surprise as far as I'm concerned that it took off with such force. Yeah. And that was, I mean, a lot of authors, uh, Updike, I know, is a good example, who really valued Freud and said, you know, Freud washed away Puritanism in America and almost made it, uh, gave artists and, and readers, but also just people, the... Uh, the tools that they needed to explore a different side of themselves. Yeah, yeah. While, as I say, being wrong almost on almost every particular <laughs> score. I mean, it was it's astonishing the amount of um, you know leeway I think we could give him. Although there was a lot of argument on his behalf for things being right in the particular and not just in the general. Right. Right. Now, do you think what you described when you said that Freud kind of showed that there was this mystery that we could get to if only we could remove the obstacles in our way? I'm not sure Nabokov would exactly disagree with that. He just seemed to disagree with the idea that when it came to art, it was that easy or that it was simple or that you could reduce the, I guess, the magic of art or the the complexity of art into some easily explainable, determined force. I'm not sure about that. I mean, I I do think he believed that the mysteries of science in particular and of nature were vast and Mm. um, fairly out of... I mean, he had some sturdy opinions of himself and his thinking. So he he wasn't afraid to declaim and, and, you know, he makes some very intriguing remarks outside of the fiction, speaking on behalf of himself, very infrequent, but nevertheless, to the effect of, I know more about the afterlife and what what awaits us than I'm willing to put down mm. uh, on on paper. And that... Yeah, I don't remember that. That's fascinating. What's... Uh, was that in a, a I, book? I'm or? not going to... I'm not going to, no, I don't think it was in a book. I'm not going to be able to remember now, though. I wish I had looked it up before our talk, but um, but nevertheless, if you look, if uh, in if you don't mind, I would like to, if I can find it, I would like to read something from Panin. Okay. That might give a good example of what I actually think was Nabokov's feeling about the ultimate mysteries. Um, and it comes, I don't know, about halfway through the book, and Panin has just basically realized that his wife, I mean, they are divorced by this point, but she's he's never going to get her back, and she's really a terrible woman. Mm-hmm. And he has nothing left, kind of, in his life, and he's very sad by this. And I'll read this because it's I think it's 
something that Nabokov does constantly, or at least consistently enough that it may give an indication of how he looks at the world. He is uh, thinking about this awful woman, and he starts, uh, he saw her off and walked back through the park to hold her, to keep her just as she was, with her cruelty, with her vulgarity, with her blinding blue eyes, with her miserable poetry, with her fat feet, with her impure, dry, sordid, infantile soul. All of a sudden he thought, if people are reunited in heaven, I don't believe it, but suppose, then how shall I stop it from creeping up upon me, over me, that shriveled, helpless, lame thing, her soul? But this is the earth, and I am, curiously enough, alive. And there is something in me and in life. He seemed to be quite unexpectedly, for human despair seldom leads to great truths, on the verge of a simple solution of the universe, but was interrupted by an urgent request. A squirrel under a tree had seen Panine on the path. In one sinuous, tendril-like movement, the intelligent animal climbed up to the brim of a drinking fountain, and as Panin approached, thrust its oval face toward him with a rather coarse, spluttering sound. Its cheeks puffed out. Panin understood, and after some fumbling, he found what had to be pressed for the necessary results. Eyeing him with contempt, the thirsty rodent forthwith began to sample the rocks, the stocky, sparkling pillar of water, and went on drinking for a considerable time. So I think that gives you a, like a really good example of like Panin's right there on the verge of making some mm -hmm. simple solution to the universe and, and Nabokov throws that squirrel, that thirsty squirrel in his path and it's forgotten about. Yeah. And it's never landed on. And I think that happens consistently enough in Nabokov's fiction as to really cause anyone thinking that he had a grand design or a universal notion or vision uh, for what the, you know, what the world held in store. To be right. very skeptical about that. And what he, what he seemed to have was details, you know, that he, yeah. he was a great celebrator of details. And he seemed yeah. to be saying, don't try to smooth out these details. Uh, don't try to place an overlay of an ideology or a, a, a meaning on top of what are actually the beautiful individual particularized details. Yeah. The particularized details informed an individual, essentially, and he was nothing if not a singular individual. Mm. And so I think he resented any kind of gathering up of his urges or impulses into the kind of gross maneuvers that Freud uh, trucked in. Mm-hmm. I think he was dispositionally allergic to such things as that. Mm -hmm. And I think he was, was even more allergic to any kind of extrapolation into a larger design that would necessarily include behavior, uh, that yeah. he would as an individual rebel against. I mean, you know, this also has a lot to do, I think, with the political situation in which he was yes. born and, and, and through which he lived, yeah. you know, that he refused to join the Hoi Polloi under any certain, un, under any circumstances. And, and so often that was, uh, the kind of gross thinking, the kind of, of, uh, crude thinking that, that, uh, would impede the kind of artistic refinement that was not only his, you know, work on the page, but his work with butterflies and his understanding of how, understanding 
science and nature from a kind of molecular level up. Right. And speaking of the politics, I also ran across a quote as I was getting ready for this show that he, it wasn't in English, but he was giving an interview, I think it was to a German publication, and he said, you know, the Freudians are, are they're, like, they're like the Bolsheviks, that they're always trying to reduce the particular in favor of yeah. the general and trying to make it a yeah. collective and trying to, you know, yeah. make it a, uh, so he is very deeply rooted and I, I think also it's hard to get around the idea that Lolita and the way that that would have necessarily been given the climate of the time and, and the way Freud was reigning at that point, uh, that he probably knew that a lot of readers of Lolita were going to try to trace it back to his childhood or try to examine the author in a way that he probably objected to and was trying to protect against. Yeah, and, you know, I mean, uh, Lolita places at the very beginning, at the very start of, of the book, places that very trap so that if you're believing that Humpert Humpert is, an, is in some way a pseudonym for Nabokov himself, you find early on the Annabelle Lee character mm. uh, whose um, seduction is averted in various ways and then tragically dies and becomes then, at least in a superficial and hoary way, um, the answer for uh, Humpert Humpert's, you know, taste for nymphets. So he was not unaware of it after, even, you know, after the, only after the fact, he was unaware of it going in and planted these little tricks for, uh, you know, the, the, uh, unwitting reader to fall into. Mm. But it, it really, I think it remains to be seen to what extent these were simple parodies of Freudian ideas, and to what extent Nabokov contained Freud and moved beyond him. I'm not, it, it feels like one of, uh, Nabokov's chess games to some extent. Mm. Um, Freud lived, uh, Nabokov lived, outlived Freud by, by 30 years, 35 years, and wrote most of his greater books, the, most of his greatest books, um, after Freud had died. So to some extent, the chess player who lives longer wins by necessity. Yeah. But nevertheless, it does seem to me that Freud had anticipated so much of Nabokov that some of his scorn and reaction was merely the feeling of a belated discoverer of so much that Freud had already known and, and interrogated. Yeah, and maybe as he was becoming, there was maybe this growing awareness that his readers and the audience for any of his books were becoming so in, immersed in Freud and, and it was becoming such a cultural currency that it was going to be inescapable for him that that's, that's what his readers would have in their minds as they were coming to his novels. Right, and so to counteract that throughout the work as something that was uh, anathema and uh, just did not pertain would guarantee a lot of attention in that regard. And in fact, I think uh, there's been, you know, insofar as this is a a popular pursuit, there's been more uh, investigation into the two, two thinkers. Yeah. Now, before the call, I was thinking that Nabokov, as I was reading some of his quotes, I was thinking, I was reminded of that uh, Saturday Night Live sketch where uh, John Lovitz is playing Michael Dukakis and he's in the debate and they say, you know, Mr. Duk Governor Dukakis, your rebuttal. And he says, I can't believe I'm losing to this guy. 
And right. it almost seemed like Nabokov sometimes seems to be like, I can't believe I still have to tell you guys the problems with Freud. But since we've been talking, I've been wondering if we could actually maybe say that Nabokov was, it improved his art or it, it sharpened his skills or that it was more like, you know, a great tennis rivalry or something where Nabokov was better for having Freud to work against. I think that's right. I mean, somebody has said, I don't know who, but if if Freud hadn't existed, Nabokov would have had to invent him, would have had yeah. to invent him. Right. And right. I think that that to some extent is right. I mean, you know, he is constantly giving us doubles in his fictions. Mm-hmm. Almost every book contains a double. And that's certainly the case with his greatest books. And they contain doubles that, like the quote, the famous quote from Freud about, I won't have it exactly, but it's like the most intimate of friends and the most hated of enemies are wrapped up, often for me, are wrapped up in one. And yeah. it seemed as if the animus that Freud inspired in the Bokov was the very thing that made him want to write in ways that were more expansive than Freud could ever dream, while at the same time seeming to, to instantiate every theory that Freud put forth. You right. know, the first time that it ever occurred to me to kind of be like, to really cock my eye at Nabokov and say, what is going on exactly, is when very early on in Speak Memory, he says, or excuse me, not Speak Memory, in Strong Opinions collection of essays, he says, they ask him about Freud, and he says, oh, I am not up to discussing again that figure of fun. And then he goes on in every interview thereafter to mention Freud once, you know, even if asked or not. I mean, he, all he does is mention this figure of fun. Right. So, though he, you know, one gets the sense that he's protesting too much, and you want to ask what exactly is up. And I do think that some of the, the things that we've talked about already, the kind of aversion to generality, the, um, the distaste for being included in any collective, the political ramifications uh, that this kind of psychiatry put forth. I mean, I would reference uh, Panin again when he's talking about uh, the rival, his big rival in, in that book, calls Siamese, even calls Siamese twins a group, uh, mm. he, he points out. He says, you know, that it is nothing but a kind of microcosmos of communism, all of this psychiatry. Right. So you get the sense that, like, this is deeply embedded in, into some fundamental ways of looking at the world, and that those two fundamental ways, the Freud, Freudian prism and the, the sort of the Nabokov response, uh, are at odds with one another. But at the same time, the way in which Nabokov, in book after book, um, mimics uh, the Freud of the interpretation of dreams in particular, and embodies the characters that he is... Uh, writing into life through the most dreamlike logic of any writer that's ever written uh, owes a lot, if not to Freud, to uh, Freudian ideas, to those kind of primal Freudian ideas that Nabokov mm. couldn't, at least to me, didn't seem to be able to slip the knot of. Yeah. You almost, you almost get the sense that if Freud had been this undiscovered uh, writer, if he had just been a, a Viennese intellect that hadn't really reached the masses in any way, or that Nabokov was one of a small select group of people who knew about his writings and his theories, Nabokov would have not had any criticism for him. He would have thought, here's a gold mine. Here's something I can, I can use and, yeah. and learn from and imagine from. It was really only 
the idea that it was becoming all pervasive and this explanatory yeah. mechanism that he felt was reducing yeah. what he was trying to do. Yeah, that tyranny of the interpretive prism that you disliked when you were in college, I think probably got at him fairly, fairly got under his skin pretty well because of uh, uh, the reasons that we've discussed. Okay, there we go. Three clips about Lolita. I hope you enjoyed it. You can hear the full interviews from all three of our guests today back in our archives. I hope you enjoyed. Did I say that already? I hope you enjoyed it. Well, I did hope you enjoyed it. I very much hope you enjoyed it. As always, we will have more next week. Next, Oh, next week is Sylvia Plath week, everyone. Please do subscribe and tell all your friends, and we will see you all here bright and early, ears freshly de-waxed. Go get that de-waxing done over the weekend. It's time, people. And I will have my vocal cords sponged and pressed. And then we'll see how things go. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.